Our sermon text for today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man and the hand, by the hand and led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. When Boaz was younger, and we lived down in Hollywood, one of his favorite things to do was to go outside bright and early every Monday and every Thursday and watch the garbage truck go through our cul-de-sac. Absolutely nothing would stop him once he heard the sound from running down the stairs and being awestruck by the lights, the sounds, and yes, even the smells. That was his ordinary routine, and he found great glory in it day in and day out. Do you sometimes find yourself struggling to be awestruck by the glory of the ordinary? We can become so accustomed to certain ordinary graces that the Lord gives us that we forget that grace that is ordinary is still grace. In some ways, ordinary graces are greater demonstrations of God's grace because we receive them constantly. Do you take for granted your life? The fact that the Lord is sustaining you do you forget, as the psalmist tells us to do, to count, number your days? Do you take your job, your career for granted, the very thing that God provided for you to find purpose and to provide? Do you take for granted your spouse? Husbands, do you, do you struggle to find delight in the wife of your youth? Do you take for granted your children, your parents, your friends? The ordinary can dull our souls. But the greatest danger is not that we can lose our admiration and appreciation for these important and yet earthly things. No, the greatest danger we face is when we become desensitized to the grace we have received in Christ. When we stop marveling at Christ, His glory and power become mundane to us, and that's a dangerous place to be. The psalmist warns us against this, doesn't he? He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. So here we are today, another Lord's Day, Another message from the Gospel of Mark, 
another miracle that Jesus performs. If you're keeping track, this is message number 33. In two weeks, we'll be marked for a year. I have a friend that preached this past year through the Gospel of Mark, and he managed to get through the whole Gospel in 31 sermons. But we are taking the scenic route. So far, we've seen about 14 miracles and wonders in Mark, including some lists. Whenever Mark says, and Jesus healed many people. We can feel a pull towards seeing these things at this point as mundane. We can feel tempted to view Jesus' power as something less than extraordinary. It's Jesus, after all. He's powerful. He can do whatever He wants. But friends, if God's mercies are made new every morning, if His grace overabounds, we should look at Him with infinite amazement. Last week, we considered blindness, spiritual blindness. We saw it in two levels. We saw the Pharisees who were blind and without hope. They demanded a sign from Jesus, and the sign better be from heaven. Jesus rebukes them in condemnation. But we also saw that Jesus' disciples were blinded. After seeing Jesus create an abundance of bread for multitudes, not once but twice, we find them in the boat with Jesus, grumbling and complaining at the fact that they have not enough bread. Jesus, again, rebukes them. A different rebuke, this time not for condemnation, but a compassionate rebuke. Because Jesus wanted them to turn to him, trust that Jesus will provide for their every need. It is by no means a coincidence that today Jesus heals a blind man. Today's miracle points beyond itself as every miracle that Jesus performs does, not to the mere healing of a man without sight, although this is important, but to the need we all have to see Jesus clearly. Our faith is initiated when we see Jesus. Zacchaeus climbed the sycamore tree to see Jesus, and his life was never again the same. Paul, on the road to Damascus, was headed breathing murderous thoughts towards the Christians, and he saw Jesus. And his life was never the same. But not only seeing Jesus, not only does seeing Jesus change our lives on a moment, it progressively changes our life. Our faith is carried out as we see Jesus. The author of Hebrews tells us to look to Jesus because he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. And our faith will be consummated, will become sight when we finally see him in his return the apostle john tells us that when jesus returns but when he appears we shall be not just see we shall be like him why because we shall see him as 
He is. The Christian life depends on our ability to see Jesus clearly. Today, we're coming to a great hinge point in the Gospel of Mark. We, we are literally halfway through the book, and so far, no human agent has rightly identified Christ. But in the next passage that we're going to see in our next sermon, the Apostle Paul will rec recognize Jesus for who he is. He will say, you are the Christ, the Messiah. This is the first time a man rightly understands Jesus' identity. So our passage for today of a blind man, a blind man gaining sight is strategically placed right before the disciples themselves gain, gain their sight. So today, we're going to look at this miracle from three different aspects, from three different angles. We're going to consider the practical aspect, then we're going to consider the literary aspect, and then finally, we're going to consider the Christological aspect of this miracle. So let's consider first the practical aspect of this miracle. On the surface, the most basic teaching that we get from this passage is that Jesus cares about the broken. This is not new. We've seen this throughout the Gospel of Mark. We see this throughout the Bible. Jesus is not a Savior who avoids the inconvenience of the needy. Jesus is not a Savior who keeps himself from the crowds. Jesus gravitates towards who need those who need compassion. Listen to these words out of Isaiah 12. Shout and sing for, for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Now notice in verse 22, Jesus and his disciples traveled to a place called Bethsaida, still on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, but towards the north, more towards the River Jordan. Several of the disciples were from Bethsaida, Nathaniel, Simon, and Andrew, among others. Some of them first saw Jesus in Bethsaida. Bethsaida was a city that had seen many of Jesus' miracles, so much so that Jesus warns Bethsaida, right, because he says that if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the things that Bethsaida has seen, then they would believe. So this was a familiar place. The details of this miracle are also very similar to the healing that we saw a few weeks ago, back in chapter 7, of the deaf-mute man. Just as we saw before, some people brought this man to Jesus. These were not random people. These were friends. We know that because they, they don't just bring this man to Jesus and leave him there. They bring him to Jesus and beg Jesus touch him to heal him brothers and sisters how good it is when we have friends that bring us to the feet of jesus friends that are sensitive to our needs friends that know us in our brokenness and our struggles in our sin friends who are willing to say you need jesus let me take you to him 
Oh, friend, Mark tells us this story because he wants us to identify with this broken, blind man. He wants us to know our need for Jesus is great. So this surface message that Jesus is inclined, is close to the broken, is a message for us. And how good it is when we have friends who beg, friends who plead, friends who pray before Jesus on our behalf. Why is this so good? Because we actually see the results of friendly intercession here. Jesus responds to their plea. Jesus runs to this man's need. A few months ago, I was looking at a picture taken on September 11, 2021 from a rooftop in New York City. The picture was of a fire truck, ladder 118, from the New York Fire Department. At the back of the picture, you see the Twin Towers up in flames and the truck running towards it. Every fireman in that truck entered that building, helped hundreds come out alive, and they were buried there. This is the picture that we see of Christ. It is a small picture of what we see of Christ. These men did not run away from death. They ran towards it. Why? Because many needed them. Jesus runs towards our need. So he comes to this man, takes him by the hand, and leads him out of the village. Similarly to the Deaf man, again, Jesus uses his spit and touch as he heals this man. This miracle shows us that Jesus' power can be made personal to us. Jesus secludes him from all other observers. It's not exactly clear why he does that, but there is great evidence that this miracle flowed from Jesus for no one else was there. As strange a picture as the saliva may be, it is clear in this miracle that Jesus is giving this man his power. Jesus is transferring power from himself to this man this miracle, we can see very clearly Jesus' personal touch. So often we see such large crowds around Jesus, and yet Jesus has the time to walk a blind man out of a village and heal him. At times we can believe that God is so far beyond us that we can't enter he can't enter our experiences. Sometimes we can think that God is busy. I had a Sunday school teacher that wrongly taught me that I shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain because God could be busy doing something and I don't want to distract him. Well, that's not the point, is it? God is able to give us His undivided attention. He can... We, we can think God transcends us in such a way that He is unreachable, but He is not. Friends, God is both great 
and good. He is beyond us and near us at the same time. By the way, no other religion can say this because no other religion has Jesus Christ. No other religion has one who is fully God and fully man. The majesty of God is that He is able to be God with us. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and also, that's the mercy of God, also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to receive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And Jesus, what, this is what Jesus did that day to this blind man. He drew near. Jesus came near. Though he is God, he draws near to pain, to suffering, to brokenness. This is not just what we see in this story. This is a picture of the entire gospel of Mark, really, this is the entire storyline of the Bible. God comes near. When Adam and Eve sinned, God did not withdraw, withdrew from them. When Adam and Eve sinned, God went to them. Though they hid, God found them. Dear saints, are you weary and heavy laden? Listen to this sweet reminder. Jesus is drawing near to you. Jesus is not afraid of your need. Jesus is not too busy to be involved with your brokenness. Are you in great need? Remember this. We see in the gospel that Jesus is attracted to need. Your need is a magnet to Jesus' grace. If we had no need, we would not realize our great need for Christ. But because we are needy, we realize we need Christ. Take heart. You're not alone. Listen to this. Your good shepherd is always with you. Now, let's move from this first level, the practical aspect of this miracle, and now let's consider the literary aspect of this miracle. What is Mark doing here? What is the picture that Mark is trying to paint here that we can only see if we zoom out? That, that's how we're going to analyze Mark's literary <coughs> work here. We need to zoom out. I told you before that Mark is a literary genius, and I mean it. Mark's goal in his gospel is to reveal to his readers the true identity of Christ. Remember Mark 1, verse 1, right? It tells us the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? The Son of God. The Father himself, after Jesus' baptism, tells us, Mark 1.11, you are my beloved son, 
with you I am well pleased. Now, perhaps more surprisingly, the demons tell us they've known Jesus from eternity past. They've known Jesus from the moment they were created. And they were not confused about who Jesus is. So when Jesus meets the gathering demon in Mark 5, the demon says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? But humans, throughout the Gospel of Mark thus far, are confused. They're confused about who Jesus is, so the, the scribes believe that Jesus is from the devil. So they say, he is, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. We saw last week the Pharisees demanded a sign from heaven. Why? Because they didn't believe that Jesus was from heaven. His family that we saw him, that saw him grow up, that knew him intimately said in Mark 3, 21, oh, he's out of his mind. But what about the disciples? So much of this book is about the disciples. So much of the Gospel of Mark is about how the disciples perceived Jesus. Remember that Mark is writing his gospel from the perspective of the Apostle Peter. And I would argue to you that Mark wants us to follow the journey of the disciples. Mark wants us to have the same experience as the disciples. We come to his gospel inquiring who is Jesus. We wrestle with that question and we finally, at the end, understand. The disciples spent countless hours with Jesus. Jesus was equipping his disciples to be his witnesses. He taught them. He provided for them. Spent time with them. He lived with them. And yet, they simply have no clue who Jesus really was up to this point. We've seen them question Jesus' wisdom, Doubt his power, his ability to provide. They've doubted his plans. After Jesus calms the storm, the disciples find themselves in the boat with Jesus, terrified, not at the storm, but at Jesus, asking themselves this question, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him remember last week the disciples start grumbling about the lack of bread as they forget that jesus is able to produce bread out of nothing so jesus bombards them with a series of questions questions that were designed to remind them of jesus's faithfulness and one of the questions that jesus asked was Having eyes, do you not see? Having eyes, do you not see? And this question reveals the heart of Mark's literary genius. This question reveals the, the heart of Jesus' ministry. The answer is no. They do not see. The answer is 
though they have working physical eyes, they're suffering from spiritual blindness. But what does Mark want us to see in our text today? He wants us to see that Jesus came to give sight to the blind. Remember Isaiah 35, right? We saw that Mark wanted us to think of that chapter in Isaiah when Jesus healed the deaf, mute men. He wanted us to know that when the Messiah came, the deaf would hear and the mute would speak plainly. But not only that, Mark wants us to know that when Messiah came, the blind would also see both physically and spiritually. Isaiah 35, 5, we read this a few weeks ago. Then when Messiah comes, right, proclaims his glories to Lebanon. Remember that? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Just as this man was given sight by Jesus, so would his disciples see Jesus for who he was. In verse 29, in our subsequent message, Jesus will ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And friends, this is the question that each one of us must answer and answer accurately. And unless we're given sight by Christ to see Him for who He is, we'll get it wrong every time. Who do you say that I am? And Peter is now given sight and he says, you are the Christ. Finally, somebody has clar clarity. Finally, the disciples see Jesus for who He is. And now the disciples will gain the spiritual sight. I believe this is a moment of regeneration for some of them. But as they understand who Jesus is, okay, here's what's happening in the literature that Mark is pointing before us. No longer will they spend their time along the, uh, around the Sea of Galilee, Jesus will now set his gaze towards Calvary. Now they understand, now we're on a mission. The geographic shift will be significant. No longer will they minister around their familiar territory where they're comfortable, where Jesus is keeping them comfortable enough for them to understand who he is. No, they're going to take over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of David, where the temple is where the spiritual center of Israel's life is there is where they will set their gaze it's, it seems almost like Jesus has gone around Galilee aimlessly with his disciples doesn't it we know that that's not the case but Mark certainly compiles this almost in a random way but no longer are we going to see that now remember this, okay? Mark is not telling us everything that Jesus did. Apostle John tells us that if we were to write everything that Jesus did here on earth, all the books on earth would not be enough, right? We know from the Gospel of John that Jesus visited Jerusalem throughout his life 
perhaps three or four times. So, so we know that Jesus' ministry was not all around, around Galilee, and then he charged towards Jerusalem. That's not how it took place. But Mark wants to build tension in the narrative. He wants us to think of Jesus' ministry, which was primarily in Galilee, and he wants us to think it is not until the disciples know and understand who Jesus is that now Jesus charges Jerusalem with them. Because now, now their center of ministry will shift. Friends, this is, this is halfway through the book, but we're almost at the end of Jesus' ministry. Okay, we are charging towards the cross now. And we're going to see that very clearly. Jesus will soon start talking about his death and resurrection. Jesus will soon start, start talking about pain and suffering in ministry. So they're going towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem has become a spiritually dead city. But the sight that Jesus granted to his disciples could once penetrate the holy city again. This is the great literary shift that Mark wants us to see. But how about this blind man? How was this blind man healed? Notice that Jesus does not tell him, blind man, heal thyself. No, it is his touch, it is his power, it is his miracle. Jesus, just as Jesus came to heal the eyes of the blind, he came to heal our blind eyes, our spiritual blindness. When the disciples were on the road to Emmaus, Jesus opened their eyes and they were able to see him. When the apostle Paul saw the reason Jesus on the road to Damascus, he lost his sight. So Ananias came to him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you might regain your sight. And what would happen once Paul regained his sight? And so that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his eyes. And friends, we face the same reality. We are utterly dependent on the sight that the Lord Jesus provides. Why would we think that we are any better than the disciples? Why would we think that we are any different from the Apostle Paul? Why should we think that we need Jesus less than the blind man we see him heal today? So friend, if you are here with us and you are not a Christian, friend, you are spiritually blind. Can I challenge you to pray a simple prayer? Just pray this. God, show me Christ for who He is. God, show me Christ for who He is. Pray this prayer, but pray it with persistency. Pray as though your life depends on it. Pray until you hear an answer. Hold on to God and tell Him, I will not let you go until you bless me. 
You may not realize this, but you're not different, friend, if you have not come to Christ from this blind man. You may have heard of Jesus, but until you see Jesus for who he is, the Son of God, the Lord of all, the Lord of your life, you don't know him. Let us not be confused. Much of our culture is Christianized, but not Christian. It is not until we see Jesus and are able to, from the heart, proclaim Him as Lord that we're born again. But here's the good news. If you're here with us and you don't know Christ, you are hearing the words of Christ. And the Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So friends, if you're here with us today, and you're not a Christian, there is great hope for you. We want you to hear that. Spiritual sight comes from hearing the good news of Christ. Open your ears. Open your eyes. Now let us consider, finally, the Christological aspect of this miracle. This miracle we're seeing today is actually unique to the Gospel of Mark. It doesn't appear anywhere else. No other gospel accounts tell us of this miracle. This miracle is very personal from the touch of Jesus to the seclusion from the village. It's amazing to see how Jesus cared about this single individual whose name we don't even know. Now, what is perhaps most particular about this miracle is the fact that it is the only miracle that Jesus performs in two stages. Did you notice that? Are you wondering about that? Why does Jesus heal the man, but the man is not completely healed? Did Jesus get it wrong the first time? Jesus spat on his eyes and touched him. Then he asked him, do you see anything? What an odd interaction. I mean, Jesus has done nothing like this so far. But here he asks the blind man if he's able to see, and the man responds, I see people. But they look like trees walking. Now, we don't know if this man was blind from birth or if he was blinded later in his life. He clearly had familiarity with people and trees, right? They both stand upright. So he's able to see... And, and, and he's seeing uh, something that looks like trees, but he knows it's man, probably the disciple, probably Jesus himself. So there is some improvement in the man's condition, but this is certainly not the kind of healing that Jesus no normally performs. So Jesus touches him again. But this time, Mark tells us, that once he opened his eyes, his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Now, this is how Jesus performs miracles. Just as the deaf mute spoke plainly, this blind man was able to see plainly, clearly. Have you ever seen those videos of people who are colorblind? and then they receive a pair of glasses that enable them to see colors, and their reaction is priceless. Often they start crying because they're able to see the world 
as they were intended to. Often they cry out of joy. Friends, what's taking place here is much greater than that. No correcting sunglasses necessary here. It is not just somebody who is able to see things but not colors, who is given now the ability to see colors. No. This man was perhaps blind from birth. We don't know. But now after he meets Jesus, he's able to see clearly. Imagine what was going on through his mind. Imagine the impact of Jesus' touch in his life. Jesus' work, friends, Jesus' work is always perfect. By the way, this is the only way Jesus performs miracles. The lame doesn't walk away with a limp. The mute doesn't speak with a lisp. The blind does not need glasses. I was seeing a miracle, a so-called miracle worker, telling, the, telling a, a, a crowd of people that he was going to heal a blind person that day. Meanwhile, he was wearing glasses. I thought that was ironic. Right? Doesn't Jesus give the gifts and the person is able to use the gifts? Why doesn't he use the gifts on himself? No, Jesus' miracles were complete restoration. Nothing like the so-called miracle workers of today who only know trickery. But the question lingers here. Did Jesus get it wrong the first time? Well, Jesus is God, and that should, that should settle it. No, he didn't get it wrong. Jesus was using this healing to teach his disciples a deep spiritual truth. Every time Jesus has singled out a person that he has healed, he has taught something about his role as the Messiah. In chapter 2, you may remember when Jesus healed a paraplegic that was lowered from Peter's house, from Peter's rooftop uh, by his friends, he forgave his sins, teaching us that the Messiah has authority not only over physical matters, but also over the spiritual realm. In chapter 7, when he healed the, the, the deaf mute men, Jesus was teaching his disciples that the Messiah came to save the nations. Jesus is Lord of all Jews and Gentiles. And now, we come to our healing for today. And the question, who is Jesus, is about to be answered. He's the Christ. He is the Messiah. That we have settled in these first eight chapters. But the question that we're going to pursue in the last eight chapters is, but what kind of Messiah is he? And the answer to this question will take up the rest of our time together in the Gospel of Mark. The disciples will, not, will now understand who Jesus is, but their ability to see Jesus will be partial. They will know Jesus is the Messiah, but they will expect him to be a Messiah that defeats the enemies by human strength. They expect him to be the Messiah that overthrows rulers and governments, 
They expect him to be the Messiah that will destroy Rome and set into place God's earthly kingdom. But this is not what Jesus came to do his first time. Jesus came to suffer. His battle would be fought through pain. And his victory would come through death. Even death on the cross. So the disciples have been given sight. But what they see are people. But they look like trees walking. But in due time, they will see and understand who Jesus is. So in our miracle for today, as Jesus heals the blind man, Jesus is teaching us that the Messiah came to suffer and die. So just as the blind man opened his eyes and I was able to see, we are called to open our eyes and behold Christ. Christ is the suffering Messiah. This is the message of Mark. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give himself as a ransom for many. That's why Jesus came. We are called to lift our eyes and see Christ, our suffering Messiah. We're called to lift our eyes and see his cross so appropriate that our baptistry is open today but the cross why the cross isn't the cross a place of punishment judgment why are christians so enamored with a cursed cross throughout their history of redemption god has called his people to look at his judgment and live. On the night that the angel of death killed the firstborn, son of e the firstborn sons of Egypt, the people of Israel took the blood of the lamb and stained their doorposts. And they looked at it. That innocent animal that died, so those who believed in the judgment of God could live. In the desert wandering, the people of Israel grumbled against God, and our God appointed fiery snakes, fiery serpents to bite them and kill them. But the people relented, and God instructed Moses to lift a serpent in their midst. And anyone who looked at a bronze serpent would live. The very thing that had come to kill them became their hope. The very judgment that God sent on them became their redemption. Today, God is calling us to look at the very object of His judgment. If He has given you sight to see the glory of His suffering Son, He is calling you to look upon His cross. Just as Israel once looked at the serpent, just as Israel once looked at the doorpost, Today we're called to look at the cross of Christ, that accursed place, look and see the Son of Man that was lifted up just as the bronze snake was lifted up in the desert. Look and see His blood that stained that wooden cross just as the blood of the Passover lamb once stained the doorpost in Egypt. That is what we're called to look upon, the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah, our only hope. Jesus sends this man home today, 
commanding him not to share his experience. He tells him not to enter the village. We've seen this a few times in the Gospel of Mark before. It is not until Jesus dies on the cross and is raised again that he commands his disciples to proclaim the Gospel. But this man went home with sight and with hope. Friends, today, you desperately need eyes to see Jesus Christ. You may have physical eyes to see earthly realities, but if you have not turned to Christ, your blindness is deep and it is spiritual and it has eternal consequences. Spiritual blindness is the same as unbelief, and unbelief is the greatest sin we can possibly commit. Friend, we saw today a Savior that is perfect. But you and I have not lived up to his perfect standards. We have sinned against him, and our sin makes us objects of his judgment before God. But Christ, the suffering Messiah, who came to die, took on the judgment of God himself on the cross. Not for the sins that he committed, but because but because we've committed sins, for the sins we've committed. Friend, and now Christ says, look to me, believe in me. Come to me confessing your sins and repenting from your unbelief, and you will find life, eternal life. Let's pray. Father, how we need eyes to see. Lord, we are unable to see spiritual realities because, Father, by nature we are dead. But, Father, Christ made us alive with him. And we praise you for that. Father, help us not shy away from the cross, not try to create a Christ who is different than the one that, than who Christ really was, Help us look to the suffering Messiah and remember it was upon that cross that our sins were forgiven and we were redeemed. We thank you for him. We thank you for his work in our behalf. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.